This is the 966 episode 52. Mr. Richard Wilson. How are Mr. You doing? Lucian Ziegler. How are you doing? I'm doing good. 52. 52. We are on a roll. We are really at nothing can stop us really at this point. So, no. um, and if you're here, <laughs> it's, a ju- it's a juggernaut. The 966 <laughs> is coming we've, for you. We've got an awesome, really awesome episode today. Great conversation coming up shortly with Dr. Sean Foley, professor at Middle Tennessee State University, master's and PhD from Georgetown, uh, author of a book on art and culture and society in Saudi Arabia. Just fantastic. You guys will love this. Um, and Richard will also be talking about Arab Barometer Seventh Wave, a public opinion survey in Saudi yes. Arabia. We will talk about. You may have heard President Biden's upcoming visit. He should <laughs> oh be God. in the air shortly uh, to Saudi Arabia. So we'll touch on that, even though it's a little too a uh, little too early to draw any conclusions from a visit that hasn't happened yet. But uh, we're going to give it a shot. Um, but for all of you listening and watching us, thank you very much for being here. We love seeing the numbers grow. It is exciting. Uh, to see our subscri- subscribers grow across all platforms. So thank you. And if you can leave us a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, that helps a lot. Um, Richard, what's your one big thing this week? Uh, yes, the one big thing. And it 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 does pertain to President Biden's visit. <clears throat> By the way, I want to mention, if you want to know anything about President Biden's visit, I hope you're subscribing to Seustic Review. Hmm. We, we have so much stuff every day. I mean, we're, we're, we're so deep into it and it's so many different opinions. And I agree with you, uh, Lucian, it, you know, I'm, at this point, I, let's, let's, let's have the summit, let's have whatever it is, the meetings, and then we can talk about it later, which we are going to be doing. Yes. I don't know if you wanted to do a shout out now or later on that. Uh, so uh, we'll get to that in my one big thing, but I will <laughs> do that. <laughs> I was also going to plug the review as well because there is so much good content in there this week, and I was going to say the same thing. So I'm glad you said it as well. No, no, I, I hope you keep this in. So it's a, it's a, it's an example of how I gum up the works. All right, <laughs> oh, my, my one big thing. In the lead up to President Joe Biden's current visit to Israel, Palestine, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, a recurring theme has been the dynamic between realism and idealism in U.S. foreign policy. We've talked about that here on the 966. And this is also set against a backdrop of uh, a struggle between democracy and autocracy. It's kind of common themes. And by the way, recent tally suggests democracy is losing ground in that fight. Um, anyway, in this atmosphere, I thought it would be useful to bring attention to the recently published Arab Barometer. <clears throat> this is the seventh major survey of Arab nations since this uh, this. Arab Barometer was first introduced in 2006. The Arab Barometer is a nonpartisan research network that is now the largest repository of available data on citizens in the MENA region. This just completed seventh Arab Barometer surveyed over 26,000 citizens in 12 MENA countries over the course of October 2021 and July 2022. The countries were Algeria, Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Lebanon, Libya, Mauritania, Morocco, Palestine, Sudan, and Tunisia. And these countries, these 12 countries, uh, comprise 80% of the population of the Arab world. The survey included a a wide range of topics, including COVID-19, the economy, government trust and performance, gender norms, and the status of women, identity and discrimination, the environment, and international relations. According to the BBC and other sources, a major takeaway was, quote, Arabs are losing faith in democracy to deliver economic stability across the Middle East and North Africa, unquote. 
Michael Robbins, director of the Arab Barometer, commented that, quote, there's a growing perception that democracy is not a perfect form of government and it won't fix everything. What we see across the region is people going hungry, people need bread, people are frustrated with the systems that they have, unquote. Also, in every country surveyed, more than half say they either agree or strongly agree that they are more concerned about the effectiveness of their government's policies than they are about the type of government. Uh, the economic situation is seen as the most pressing challenge for seven countries and the Palestinian territories ahead of corruption, instability, and the spread of COVID-19. Only in two countries is the economic situation not seen as the most crucial issue. In Iraq, it's corruption, and in Libya, it's instability. At least one in three people in every country surveyed agree with the statement that over the past year, they ran out of food before they next had sufficient funds to buy more. So the point of this being my one big thing is to add a little ground truth to what we have discussed here before on the, on the 966, and that the U.S. foreign policy does not serve U.S. national interests if it ignores the economic, social, and political realities of countries across the globe in order to tout aspects of our liberal democracy that are simply inappropriate and or infeasible for these countries at this time. We need to meet nations where they are, try to align incentives and achieve mutually beneficial outcomes insofar as possible. We don't need to remake the world in our image. And as surveys such as the Arab Barometer reflect, there is diminishing interest in our model as the answer to pressing needs. In closing, uh, Dr. Robbins of the Arab Barometer notes that, quote, the future is uncertain. Citizens in the region may be looking to alternative political systems such as the Chinese model, an authoritarian one-party system that he says has, quote, brought a huge number of people out of poverty in the last 40 years. That type of rapid economic development is what many people are looking for, unquote. Wait, you mean that we don't need to go to every country in the Middle East and beyond and lecture them on democracy and human rights um, one by one, that they may not listen? Um, <laughs> That's why I say it's ground truth. Apparently, <laughs> apparently to, the, to this leading survey that has a tremendous reputation and is professionally done and has been done since 2006, you are correct, Lucian. Mm -hmm. That is not well received. That is definitely a theme um, of this program. And um, no, this is, uh, I was obviously joking. This is really good, Richard. I, th this is interesting too, because the this is the Arab barometer, but they obviously don't include every Arab state. In fact, um, correct. just some yeah. noticeable, notable ones, Saudi Arabia, obviously the UAE, they say that either funding uh, limitations, ongoing instability, or government restrictions on full and fair access to the survey um, prevented that. But I mean, what we're getting still is a snapshot of the Arab world through these other countries that they have done, uh, that they, they have uh, surveyed. And yeah, I mean, this was this was really interesting. This is very interesting. And it's sort of like John Sfakianakis told us last week, Richard, that really, you know, pretty much everywhere, but, you know, mostly people vote or people express their political idea, uh, you know, opinions and, and desires through their pocketbook. And, um, you know, people really... Uh, especially in the United States, we believe in democracy and we believe everybody should be a democracy, but it's just not realistic in many places, at least right now. And that the journey toward that, if it is even in that direction at all, is not going to be on our time frame, which I think is, uh, you know, really interesting. But this was a this survey is 
um, has a sterling reputation is fantastic. And we're going to include a link to it um, on our YouTube page and on our website as well. But yeah, this is a really good one, Richard. Yeah, you make a good point. And it's good reference what what John said. I think it's worthwhile pointing out here is that you're right. The, the survey was not comprehensive. And, and, and the other thing to consider is, all right, so these 12 countries, as is noted, comprise 80% of the population. It's only 42% of the total GP of, of the Arab world. So, I mean, there is a haves and haves nots situation mm -hmm. in, the, in the Arab world. And uh, a lot of these countries are facing extremely unstable situations, politically, economically. Um, and, and all the more reason why the U.S. In, in crafting its foreign policy needs to be sensitive to these things and what messages work. If we want, you know, if the point is to achieve our ends and maybe to establish some mutually beneficial incentives, you got to you, you, you gotta know where to begin and, and what's, what floats. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if you're talking to, to, you know, a Lebanese who, you know, the, I think the World Bank, it says one of the worst economic crises in, in, in the 20th century and in 20, since the 20th since the 20th century, um, they need to feed their kids. Right. <laughs> right. You know, they can't, they're not worried about other things. Um, and actually, I, I want to do a shout out to our friend, um, John Alterman and in his, his, um, his podcast babble, which was really good. This recent episode, he had Greg Gauze on. And, and one of the things that Greg Gauze said is that, is that, quote, I think that the biggest geopolitical issue in the Middle East is actually not Iranian nuclear weapons, the Yemen civil war or oil prices. I think that the biggest overall geopolitical issue is the weakness of so many Arab states. Hmm. The civil wars and civil disorders that are occurring in Yemen, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Libya, unquote. Again, just feeding into there are local realities that, uh, you know, if, if we want to be effective in the region and, and, and further our national interests, we, we have to understand better. Yeah, I mean, and, and Lebanon is a great example. Um, Egypt is another great example with food prices just going straight up. And, you know, if you, I'm sure if you were to ask a normal Egyptian, hey, like, uh, you know, what do you think about are you they, they would all say, I mean, we got to get I got to be able to buy bread. Like yeah. that's, that's my number one pressing concern. I think <laughs> exactly. since you asked. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, no, this was a really great, um, this is a really get, a great study. And yeah, like, again, we will include a link to it. Um, I was reading, uh, reading it this morning, Richard, very interesting that you mentioned too, about the GDP and that, you know, it is a sort of a have and have nots situation over there. And that, that does color this, um, which is very interesting. Yeah, which but then it'll it, this will loop back into our other conversations. But it, it, it's all the more reason why you want to be going to the countries that are stable, Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. and you know its immediate allies, and 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 many of the countries that uh, Joe Biden's going to be meeting with tomorrow, and and try and 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 work with them to to keep the region stable and and do the things that uh, keep these in, unstable situations from blowing up and pulling us back into the region. So anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, there it is. hundred percent. Richard, it, adds, it actually does transition well to my one big thing, which really Excellent. isn't even a one big thing because it hasn't happened yet. Um, <laughs> we've spent a lot of time talking about it and for good reasons, it's a huge deal. But as we are recording this right now, as you may have heard, President Biden is on his way to Saudi Arabia. And by the time this recording actually publishes and then lives forever online, we may look stupid because we will know so much more in a few days than what we do now. But of course, uh, that didn't stop this week and last week, a deluge of coverage, analysis, oh, opinion, observation. Goodness. Tsunami. 
and whatever it is you may find on Twitter on the visit. Um, and, you know, Richard, we, we talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, I love a good plug. Almost every bit of these viewpoints and items in the news we included this week on all sides of the spectrum in our news review um, for the Saudi U.S. trade group, which is just was uh, Richard. I just have to say as an aside, was good to go back after we collected them and just read it all together as one because it was so comprehensive that you can really get your mind to be focused when reading it it really is that good so um a little plug a little self-serving plug there but um as of now it looks like there will be uh, a significant announcement involving israel um a situation we've discussed here on this podcast um it looks like there isn't much to gain on the energy front. We'll see. Of course, you have the issue of Russia uh, for the United States, and there's Saudi Arabia's role to play in that if they want to. We'll be looking a little bit between the date palm leaves and hoping to overhear through the echoes of the courtyard anything about China and America's interest in engaging with Saudi Arabia and its Arab partners to prevent them from looking ever more eastward. There's, of course, been a lot of ink spilled in the press on the issue of human rights, detainees, uh, LGBTQ rights, um, et cetera. There's a lot out there as well on defense and security, uh, talk of an integrated defense system, which clearly will not happen overnight, but can steps be taken to build it over time, including taking down barriers of mistrust between regional partners. Let me just call attention quickly to a great piece in Politico. Richard, you added, I believe yesterday, which quoted our boy, David DeRoche, who is just so yes. great um, and talking a little bit about how <laughs> that is quite a difficult thing to imagine at this time um, with a lot of mistrust and sort of legacy um, issues between these partners. And, you know, in general, a NATO of the Gulf is very unlikely that would require a treaty from the U.S. Senate, which is also hard to imagine. But um, drawing attention to one last thing in particular, Richard, there's so much on this visit that this isn't even a thing. I'm just rambling here. But no. one last thing in particular, there was a really good poll conducted, a rare poll, which found an overwhelming majority, 92 percent of young Saudis who form about two thirds of Saudi Arabia's population see the United States as an ally of their nation, with 59 percent saying the U.S. is a strong ally and 33 percent saying it is somewhat of an ally. That's really why this trip matters. And again, next week, we have such an awesome, awesome sort of special format episode. We're going to bring in a bunch of experts to do an after action postmortem on the visit and what's happening next. But and, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But um, I think this is really, uh, really why this trip matters is because it's not just one issue. And it's as easy as it would be to say, well, it's about oil, it's about security, it's about this and that. It's it's like 15 things. And President Biden wrote, and Richard, we talked about this right before the show, um, an op-ed for The Washington Post, why I'm going to Saudi Arabia. He does not very directly answer the question, but he answers <laughs> the question in it's the same way that I'm sort of talking about it right here, which is, there are so many ways in which the countries are interconnected and can benefit from each other that it's not just one thing that he's doing. It's a, a slate of issues. So again, I don't, I'm actually going to put a fork in it right there because um, there's so much to discuss and we will really get to it next week, which is exciting, but it's happening right now. And this will be outdated the second you see it. But um, this is a huge visit from President Biden to the to Saudi Arabia. I, I think that's a, a a really good framing of it because, as we've seen in our work, in our in our curation and all, in the newsletter, I mean, you everybody and bright people and uh, people who have a have a particular point of view, people who have one issue, people who have a, a a larger picture of things. 
gets into granular detail about a handshake or who wins or who loses. But the logic of engaging with Saudi Arabia, especially in the context of the wider region, at this time is really compelling. And, and, and I think it's important to, to pull back a little bit and get off of the, you know, you know, normalization and, and um, you know, regional defense and handshake versus DAP versus what versus this and that. Um, in the global context, we have to remember that this, this administration, Biden administration began early to rebuild the NATO and EU relationships. And, and, and this was critical to what can only be termed really a significant foreign policy success in achieving a unified US EU response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. This is this is uh, really been, I think, um, impressive to the world and and reaffirms the US's ability to uh, to coalesce this kind of coalition and this kind of response. Nobody else can do this. Mm -hmm. Now we understand that not everyone in the world is on board, but the point is, is this is this is clearly a, a foreign policy success in Europe for Biden. He's already traveled to Asia. He's already traveled to Latin, Latin America this year. Um, it, it, again, it makes sense to be going to the Middle East, another area um, that is really at a very um, uh, interesting time. A, a time of potential. I mean, Saudi Arabia right now is essentially the center pivot of a region that's going through a, a diplomatic spring, mm -hmm. in essence. I mean, key nations are reestablishing lines of communication, increasing economic interaction, attempting to de-escalate tensions in order to more effectively pursue their domestic goals. I mean, uh, the U.S., we want this to continue. I mean, one of the things we're going to be selling is, look, you guys take care of your business better, and, and I think, well, there'll be a discussion about, you know, defense and security arrangements. But I mean, the two key goals for, for President Biden, um, not the only goals, but two key goals is less strife in Yemen and more regional integration for Israel. Mm -hmm. These goals go through these goals. Both these goals go through Riyadh. And um, you, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I was just going to just going to and I didn't mean to interrupt you because that, that was great. But I just wanted to interject. You didn't say energy. And it was it's sort of like watching the media discover this over to over eight, you know, eight weeks, 10 weeks that this is not about oil. So and, and I didn't mean to interject there. No, no. And, and no. it is. And we and we get but I mean, but moreover, and I mentioned it in my one big thing, the region is rife with unstable states, any mm -hmm. of which can create issues that have the potential to drag the US back into the region, and all of which are more effectively addressed with Saudi support and partnership. Mm -hmm. I mean, the standoff between uh, Mohammed bin Salman and, and, and Joe Biden that has prevailed is detrimental to US national interests and to Saudi Arabia's. Um, and on top of that, and again, you know, you know, again, why is, he, why is he going, this and that? I mean, US remains a singular relationship for Saudi Arabia. It's the only country that is willing and able to provide security. Um, you know, it's, we're the only ones who have the capacity and the willingness to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, Russia and China both have longstanding, uh, I mean, longstanding. So Russia is not willing to, Russia, you know, especially in a diminished state, but Russia by habit is really a, a, a politically as a country of opportunism. I mean, it fills voids, fills voids for the U.S. left, in, you know, in the, in the Middle East. China, of course, is, is an economic powerhouse and, a, and significant key markets, but it's not willing to 
uh, provide security for a region in Saudi Arabia. And moreover, Russia and China both have longstanding established and in some areas burgeoning relations with Iran. I mean, and, and so despite the advantages and the in Saudi Arabia will continue to hedge because that's the important thing to do. Um, there is, you know, there, there is no better option than for Saudi Arabia than the U.S. And they would prefer to have a more defined, a more mature, and a more amicable relations with, with the U.S. And it's time, you know, it's time to put this past behind us. It's time to, I think, to, to uh, push this uh, diplomatic spring, in essence, and to, uh, you know, try and, uh, try and sort of codify and formalize and, and make more clear our relationship with the kingdom and with the region. Um, so I think the trip is, is timely. And uh, again, I'm not looking at the granular details. There's overarching uh, national interest to be served by improving our relationship with Saudi Arabia and the, and the region and the, and, you know, the, the states that are going to be in Jeddah. And uh, there's a lot of advantage to be had. So I'm not sure what's going to be announced. We've talked about it. Everything's constrained. And obviously in the run-up, people talk about their own issues. You know, everyone's pounding the drum for normalization of Israel, which will come in, in bits and pieces. It won't happen right away. Everyone's mm -hmm. talking about a regional defense, uh, uh, air defense, especially, you know, that, that can't happen right away. Um, but there's a lot that can happen in terms of goodwill, in terms of clarification of lines of communication, in terms of getting closer together on a strategic and tactical page and of moving forward instead of this sort of uh, hamster wheel of, of uh, standoff that we've had. Um, and if he comes back and, and you, know, you know, President Biden will come back and everyone will, will you know, do a forensic examination of it and parse this and parse that. But if he comes back with a better understanding with MBS and with the region and uh, some commitments that, uh, are, are mutually beneficial uh, and they don't have to be world beating or astounding or uh, that sort of thing, then the trip is well worth it. Just really, really great points. And I, I wanted to jump in there to congratulate you mid point to tell you how good that point was. Um, <laughs> and I'm glad I didn't. So I just let you finish it because uh, that was really good. I mean, if you think about like who is rooting for this visit to fail, you would probably put Vlad Putin at the top of that list. And you would also, who's uh, Putin, who is visiting Iran next week, by the way, um, yes. according to the AP report. So, yes. um, I mean, he is going to be watching this, this visit by Biden, probably closest, um, you know, around the world. And, and so it's just, it's, it's really fascinating that you can kind of look at it through that lens and say, who wants this to fail? And you look at the actors saying, man, we really don't want Biden to have a good visit to Saudi Arabia. We want it to be embarrassing. We want it to be bad for him or them and nothing to come out of it. You know, the other point that I want to make, Richard, is that we are, like you said, focus on the details and, and you and I do focus on the details a lot, but right now we're taking the step back. But, you know, um, in, in these details, like Anything can happen here on this visit. Nothing can be announced. There could be no big rollout or some big, you know, MOU with $100 billion in sales. It could just be, hey, they went and met. They talked it out. They covered a bunch of issues in private. They had a great meeting, photo op, you know, that's it. That wouldn't be a failure. That would be a success. I mean, if it moves the relationship forward, it advanced the interests of both countries. And that's kind of important to keep in mind as we're looking for one big 
you know, I mean, like we're, we're hoping President yeah. Biden comes off the plane and does like one of those NFL end zone handshakes where it's coordinated, you know, um, <laughs> uh, like a special kind of handshake. It's, uh, you know, I don't know if that's going to happen. Definitely not. That's going to happen. But um, just, you know, it's it's so easy to get caught up in the little details here. The big picture is good. I agree. And we've talked about what's gone. We've, we've had segments on what's happened over the last 18 months in terms of diplomacy in the region. And, and again, as I said, Saudi Arabia has been a center pivot for a lot of that. And, and, you know, in the run up to this meeting with Biden, I mean, you know, King Salman was on the phone with President Sisi the other day, but, the, you know, obviously MBS has traveled to Turkey, Egypt, Jordan uh, a month ago. I mean, they are getting their ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. They're getting their, their lines and their, their um, asks, you know, in a row. This is all good stuff. And, and a lot of, and Dave DeRoche is someone that's talked about this, you know, the more, and actually Bilal Saab has talked about this, about this too, and, and Brad Gandy, all people we've had on this said, look, the more, the more the region can take care of its own business, both politically and, and uh, security wise, the better for the U.S. Mm-hmm. We don't have to be a fireman for every little situation. We have to be, we have to, we can provide a certain level of top level of security and, and, and maybe we're willing to do that. And I think the Saudis certainly want us to do that. But, you know, if, if they're managing their affairs better themselves on the ground, then that's good. And, and I wanna, and I think you mentioned it about oil and, and, and you know, maybe they'll come so, some sort of notional uh, increase or that sort of thing. We know that the markets are more complex than that. We know that a lot of the bottlenecks are refining. But in any case, um, I want to quote two people, uh, if, if I can, about mm-hmm. this trip. And our good friend, Upshin Malabi, who, again, has been on the 966. We're just rolling up great guests, we, I have to we, say. We really are on fire. <laughs> um, and it's not this simplistic because, I mean, w- w- there will be discussion about energy. There will be a discussion about uh, regional defense issues. So those things still obtain, you know, defense and energy. But uh, Afshin Malavi in the Asia Times uh, writes, quote, for too long, the United States regional policy has focused almost entirely on the triumvirate of security, geopolitics, and oil. It's time for the U.S. and the broader Western world to widen its scope and see the mean and reason for what it is and not a character of what it was in the 1970s. What he's talking about here is the strategic commercial geography of the region, in Saudi Arabia in particular, talking about shipping, ports, air transport, airports, supply chain, trade connectivity. And I want to marry that comment with with what Yasmin Farouk in the New York Times said. And I think it's really true. And I think it's something that if Joe Biden uh, and his team are paying attention, they can address and they can establish a whole new mode of communication and mode of interaction with Saudi Arabia in particular. And this is what Yasmin Farouk says, um, uh, quote, the Saudis want to be treated as a U.S. partner. And today, U.S. partners talk with the U.S. not just about security and oil, but also about technology, climate, and energy, unquote. So, I, I, you know, harking back to your initial thing, there wasn't, you know, you didn't mention oil. Um, this is an opportunity to truly reset the relationship and to, and to put it on a path, a much more uh, mutually beneficial, much more regionally and locally sensitive path where the U.S. is aware of what Saudi's priorities are and, is, and, 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 and in doing so, in my opinion, it can get to what we always want is, all right, let's move behind the net, beyond the traditional uh, you know, oil, gas, security paradigm. It doesn't eliminate it, 
but let's move on how we can engage and U.S. companies can get involved in this amazing transformation that goes on in Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and anyway, so uh, there's, uh, there's lots of reasons to be hopeful about this trip. And again, for me, there's plenty of reasons uh, that uh, support the logic of the trip. Handshake or no handshake, this trip is important. And, you know, that's, that's just, that's how it is, how we see it. And um, I think we should put a a pin in it there because next week we have such a great episode. Um, My colleague here was working hard, even on a very short vacation to arrange for it all next week. We'll have several (laughs) experts in to discuss it, give sort of an after action review of it. Um, And it's going to be really, really great. So we've decided to sort of push a lot of that. We could have done it all this week, but it would have been all speculation. And we try to minimize that here as best as we can. But yeah, it'll be better. It'll, it'll be, be better. much Have better people. done next week. Yep, yeah. for sure. <laughs> Richard, let's get to now our conversation with Dr. Sean Foley. He is an expert on Islamic um, art and culture. He's uh, an author, a professor at Middle Tennessee State University. Really a bright guy. Um, so much to get to in this conversation. I think you guys will enjoy it. Enjoy. We are pleased to welcome on to the 966, Dr. Sean Foley. Dr. Foley specializes in Middle East history and the cultural, political, and religious trends in the wider Islamic world. He is a professor at Middle Tennessee State University and received his PhD and master's from Georgetown and received his bachelor's with honors and distinction from UC Berkeley. Dr. Foley is author of the book, Changing Saudi Arabia, Art, Culture, and Society in the Kingdom which is widely regarded as the definitive text on the Saudi arts community and has written and spoken extensively on arts in the Muslim world, smoking in the Muslim world, and contemporary culture in Saudi Arabia, including on music. One recent piece he published with AGISW entitled The Gulf's New Sound, (laughs) Indie Music and Global Change is about the new talented class of musicians in the Gulf states. Dr. Foley, thank you so much for joining us on The 966. Thank you very much for having me. Again, it's it's good to know I'm I'm joined with esteemed August company, people who have known people who I've respected for a long period of time, but also I really respect what you're doing here. Um, one of the wonderful things about Saudi society um, and things that I respect and have grown uh, uh, grown to love is the I- idea of dialogue, um, that you have the amajlis in many places, in homes or in businesses, and the idea of sitting and talking for an extended period um, you know, get some coffee, let's have some dates, let's have some tea, some good food, but sitting and talking and the idea uh, of that dialogue, one of the um, one of the early art exhibits was we need to talk. And, you know, sometimes in, in the West, if we hear that phrase, we need to talk, eh, maybe something scary is about to happen. <laughs> but no, we need to talk is also a way by which you can bridge commonality, bridge differences, forge new commonalities, forge new community, find way by which we can include a larger group of people, even if they might disagree on a lot of things. And as an American, but in a society which is driven by divisions and oppositional forces, that's our politics, you see in our culture all over the place. Um, The idea of developing and thinking of new ways of bringing dialogue, of bringing people together of different perspectives and ideas and finding ways by which we can talk and think differently is very powerful and I appreciate and applaud the public service that you're doing, not only to build bridges among us who are interested in, in, in the kingdom as scholars and experts, but also the wider world and particularly um, between the United States and, and Saudi Arabia, country, countries with deep ties, but also with differing perspectives on the world and differing histories 
and for which um, it's a good time and a right place to begin to have these type of conversations. Wow, that's they're very kind. Thank they're you, kind. Sean. And and uh, Lucian, we need to find a way to capture that and use it in our marketing. And it I do also, my best. It also it also prompts me to we have to reconsider our name. Our name we might want to change it to the nine six six modulus. Yeah, yeah, or something vir- like that. Virtual I mean, modulus, yeah. Virtual, virtual modulus. modulus. And, and again, that's what arts our artists were thinking about. And the whole point with an arts gallery was to create a place where people would have to come together and look at art, and and then they realize that you could do that with social media um, and that social media created opportunities for people to, to discuss. You do that with television, with movies, and it's a wonderful way. I mean, look, we live in a world where like, people think, act differently, have different perspectives. How, how do you deal with that? I mean, uh, give me an example, I'm watching a, uh, a documentary and, and it talked about a, a, polit- a, a group one group visiting another community and 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 into a political conflict out in Oregon and on Netflix. And one of the people said, well, it's like a basketball game. We play, we play, and then we end. The problem is that's not the way politics works. <laughs> um, yeah, the election may happen, but that, you know, that doesn't mean that's the end. The game's not over. The game's not over. Right. And one of the things I find refreshing about Saudi artists throughout any genre you can talk about, and and the um, and we'll talk a bit about also about Vision 2030, for which they are very closely tapped, is they are thinking about how to deal with those problems. How do you deal with, um, I mean, one of those wonderful moments as an instructor, you rarely get them. I, I had Hisham Fakih speaking to my class. It was a wonderful assignment that, that Hisham um, was able to do, was sort of working with, and, and I had to speak to my class um, about a movie he had done called Baraka Meets Baraka. It was really nice of him to, to speak to my students about this. And um, we, we were discussing back and forth um, about Saudi arts. And it was, it was an interesting question um, that one of my students, a, bri- a very bright student, student um, asked him and asked, and it got him to say that he was interested in, and what he basically translated is say, we're looking at oppositional forces. And we're looking at finding ways to get around them. And the, the, the classic Western example is thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? Sort of thing we all learn in school. I know, um, Richard, you said your daughter is at Clemson, yes? Right. Yeah, so it's probably something she may learn in one of her classes. Oh, very good. Excellent. As well. <laughs> well, you Go know, tigers. for as much as I'm paying, I got a cup. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Good. And again, I appreciate, Lucian, you mentioned Berkeley. And again, we're wearing Berkeley colors blue today. So that was great with that. We all got the um, memo. Yeah, we got the memo on that. Um, but I, I should note that when he, he said in this sort of interaction in class, and he said it was a wonderful moment, um, he was talking about thesis synthesis. That's that's sort of our idea. You have two options. One army fights another army, and then you have a synthesis. What happens if it's just those two armies together in the same place? So you've got this sort of tension. How do you work about that? How do you think about that? How do you create a type of art or create a type of conversation where those types of differences can coexist without causing problems that so, we can get along? And that and and it's interesting. Your 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 particular nexus as a professor and as a as a acad- academic and and historian, you know, you're interweaving a lot of things. Um, but I want to get for our viewers and our, our, our listeners, I want to get a starting point and I want to get um, uh, I want to get the prelude to what you're saying, you know, the oppositional forces, sort of how sure. the art scene evolved and that sort of thing. And, and, and I know 
uh, and let me start with what you know most people know about Saudi Arabia and in, insofar as its vision for 2030. And as we right. know, it's mostly top line topics, you know, neom, women driving, uh, you know, uh, sports acquisitions, which is a big, golf. A, in a big, in a big picture these days. And uh, golf, did you say golf or did Lucian say Yeah, golf? I, I just said golf. Lucian's best friend. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, golf. I mean, golf too. And, and, yeah, and I people ask me about it. You're right, and and not only top line well, too. Remember, wait, 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 Sean. Before you yeah. get going, I want I, I'm 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 oh god, bound I'm, and determined. I'm bound and determined to get you in a lane at least at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the point being is that as, as unknown to most you know general observers, is that a big part of Vision 2030 is a vibrant society, and uh, you know, and that runs the gamut from from better health habits, uh, you know more Saudis volunteering, you know, more family entertainment options, heritage, um, but also the arts. And we're talking across the, the, the board, you know, cinema, film, but, uh, you know, painting, sculpture, music, even music. And obviously you're an expert. I mean, Lucian, Lucian, you're deeply involved in this. And, and Lucian talked about changing Saudi Arabia, your, your book, 2019, which we re recommend. But uh, let you. us let's let us find a starting point and 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 so how did you first get involved how has it evolved and i think we'll get to all this and how is it faring under the vision 2030 in the vision 2030 world first of all thank you for that introduction and keeping me in a lane i'm an <laughs> academic so I'll, we like to talk that's a great <laughs> phrase from uh um old movie um, set in san francisco i like a man who likes to talk uh great phrase <laughs> maltese falcon Took me a minute to yes, remember that. Yes. Yeah, great phrase. Um, so let me stay in my lane. I'll do my best. Um, no, no, I, I, I didn't say stay in the lane. I just said we just want to start you in start, a lane. Yeah. <laughs> I, and, and in terms of, we'll start in a lane and then we'll get me in the right place. First, um, I come from an artistic family. Um, I've been interested in the arts for a while. My grandfather was in Vaudeville, New George M. Cohen. Um, his uh, draft card from World War One lists him as a performer, actually, and his <laughs> occupation actually on Broadway in Times Square. It's really pretty amazing. Um, from World War One, my awesome. father's a poet and a writer, so I, I come from an artistic tradition. So I'm always sort of interested in that. But my training had been in, in you know, traditional history, political science, and I got really lucky. Uh, a good friend of mine from Mal my wife, mine from Malaysia, was getting married in the UK. And I had a fellowship to go research a second book in the kingdom. It was a great partnership between my university and King Saud University, one of the, the kingdom's great universities. And while I was there, um, right before that happened, this was late 2012, I was gonna start in 2013, um, I, the friend was getting married in Sheffield. And I, I looked sort of following the media and I saw that there was an, an exhibit, um, hashtag come together, took me a minute, got there it, go. hashtag come together. And first of all, that was a, a wonderful thing. I'm thinking, wait, that's interesting. And I was going to go do a, a follow-up book to that, to my first book, which had been in political science. I talked about women. Or it played a role, but it was a larger book about history, politics, culture, and society. And I went to this, went to this art exhibit. And it was in London. And I, 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 we sort of made time to do it. And I was absolutely blown away um, because I saw a series of artists. And those artists were beginning to think about the ideas that we see today in Vision 2030, they're beginning to envision a society through their art. Again, um, you know, very great phrase that we talked about earlier, um, pre-conversation, Ezra Pound, um, that artists are sort of the antennae of society. 
that, that they can feel things, sense things. And I'd always been aware of that. Um, I, in fact, I'd written a, a paper in Maher Zane, a Lebanese Swede, actually, um, who had become a very important per, um, per, um, performer and done some work also that had seemingly sensed things with the Arab Spring um, as well. And he's a performer, um, in, he's Swedish, but is over a billion hits on YouTube and videos that are found throughout the world. Um, and so I was aware of the arts and I was aware the arts could be important, very important. Um, and, but I went in and I remember seeing um, one of the first pieces I saw was um, Ahmed Matar's piece called Cowboy Code. What a piece, right? <laughs> uh, on one side, you've got the you know, sort of Cowboy Code from the mid 20th century, America mid 20th century. On the other side, after mid 20th century, on the other side, you've got the Islamic war, war laws of war from the Prophet Muhammad, both, both there. And how would you put those both things in the same space? And I just know that they're with red bottle caps, sort of play bottle caps from cowboys, right? It's made of all these things. What do those things, two things have in common? How can something from the mid 20th century, right, right. be in common with something from way back in the sixth and seventh century? How is that possible? But Matar saw it. There were phrases, for instance, dealing with women that were identical on both. Interesting. And, that would be interesting. So yeah. just to interrupt, sorry. I think uh, our technical wizard, Lucian, I mean, if, if, you're, if, if you're viewing this, if you're consuming this 966 episode on YouTube, there'll be pictures up. Yeah. And, and so, so there'll be some, you'll be able to see this because uh, you provided us uh, with a lot of images. And like I said, uh, Lucian's a technical wizard. So anyway, just, just so the you know, viewers can know. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's a great thing. And by the way, um, one of the wonderful things about this is, A, you get to spend time with artists, which is terrific, see their art. And also, um, they've been very generous. Let me just say this as a plug, very generous with their time. And, and can I say something about before going further, just quickly about artists? One of the wonderful things as a Western scholar, we, we look at artists as people who go make art right in, in their in their art, wherever they do their art and their gap in, you know, their in their studio. And then come back and sort of say, this is my art. This is what I think. So as a scholar, when I went to go interview people like Ahmed Matar and Abdel Nasser Garam, very famous artists, um, I, I, would, I would assume I would be asking the questions. Instead, they asked me the questions. What do you think? Interesting. Curiosity. Yeah. Curiosity. Oh, curiosity. But also, it, I suddenly realized that these pieces have multiple meanings. And at a certain level... Part of the beauty of Saudi art is its ability to, to take on different meanings depending on the audience. In fact, it can have opposite meanings depending on who you are in the audience. And that's a, a, a remarkable thing um, when we think about art, when we think about how, um, um, when we think about art and how these things operate, um, the, the think in those terms. And, and, and again, thinking about coming to a dialogue. Um, how do you, and, and again, the idea of dialogue and be able to evolve in different contexts. So, um, so sorry to interrupt, Sean. So this, you, you wandered into this uh, Suffolk exhibition, Edge of Arabia, in what, 2004? Yeah, it's, yeah, no, no, this is 2013. Oh, I mean, I was aware right. of it already, but this is, um, it's hashtag come together, by the way, isn't that a great title? Hashtag title. come together. And of course, that's back to the, to the famous Beatles song. Right. Um, uh, they're in London. What else are they going to do? And, um, <laughs> 
you know, in that context. And I saw that piece and I realized, wait a second, I thought I understood something about this Muslim world. By that point, I'd been teaching 10 years, about 10 years. I'd gotten my doctorate um, 2005, 2006. So, then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an associate professor. I've got a book. I've taught classes. I've lived overseas. I've been in, I'd been a Fulbright scholar in Syria and Turkey and also in Malaysia. And I suddenly realized there's something here I don't understand. And that if I'm going to go spend time in the kingdom, if I'm going to spend time and I was uh, fortunate enough to live in the kingdom and travel all the way for all over the kingdom, that I needed to understand this art, that this art was going to tell me something about the kingdom, but also about the world I was living in. And that they had things that they were seeing truths that I was going to be a better teacher and a better scholar. And I understand my own world and my own country better if I understood and spent time with these scholars. And, and, and then I, I say scholars, they're artists, but they're also scholars too. They're enormously intelligent, intellectual people. I, I love your enthusiasm. I mean, and, and so this, this is not only an academic journey, it's a bit of a spiritual journey as well. Oh, I absolutely. It's a spirit. It's all of the above. And, and for me, it's been a, 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 an opening journey. Again, it also allows me to build on my own, you know, my own heritage, my own traditions. But it, it's, I think, really important um, to understand where they're coming from. And they've got a voice. And it's a voice that's listened to it. And, and one of the great things about amazing things about Vision 2030, and I had no way of predicting this back in 2013, was that Vision 2030 has looked at this and realized this is this is real value. That what they're doing has enormous value, not only in, as you correctly said, in the arts, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but almost all throughout, all throughout society, the idea of creativity is something um, that is, you know, that that is being pushed. Um, Noon Academy, for instance, which is an education startup, one of the most successful um, in, in, um, in the Middle East, is a Saudi startup. Again, this idea of creativity and the idea that, you know, as, as you know, that we're going to learn music. Why? Not just because we're going to learn music or look at art because it's beautiful. And that's certainly important. But also it, it, it inspires us to think about something different. And it's a reminder, again, that nothing is done alone and that we can learn a lot by listening to these other voices. So, and this is something we've, when we've talked with others about the art scene, um, the understanding and, 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 and they want to remind you, they want to remind us that it existed prior to, 20, to Vision 2030. Oh yeah. And I, but I think it's fascinating that you say that one of the aspects of Vision 2030 was recognizing the importance of this creative element. And, and, and so, so how does that, so it, when you, when I say it existed, I mean, what, what's the state of affairs of the art scene in Saudi Arabia in 2013? And, and, sure. And Adi, it goes back even before. I mean, uh, yeah, one of the most important yeah. singers, Muhammad Abdu, who I'm, I'm right. sure your listeners will know, um, you let viewers will know, um, was one of the great singers. And there's a whole series of very uh, famous singers, uh, Alicia Keys, when she did her performance in the King of Actually referenced at least one of them. Um, so that, you know, that these are, are very much um, part of their tradition that go back way, way, way back, right. um, you know, way back to the middle of the century. And also this is a, a culture that's produced poetry even back. But the, the state of the, the, the specific artistic scene was that there was a specific trajectory um, that had begun in the South. Halib and Faisal, who was then governor um, from the early 70s into the mid to, uh, 2007, I believe, mm -hmm. um, recognized that there was a problem. Um, that there were issues, particularly in the southern part of the country, but also sort of that there were tensions within Saudi society, and um, he wanted to find ways of resolving them or addressing them. And it's interesting, he wasn't acting as a governor or as a government official. 
he was acting as sort of as an important person, but said, okay, we need to do this. And one of the things well, that, he, he's an that artist really himself. did that yeah. was two of the multiple of the 9-11 bombers were from the South. This was unheard of, that the assumption was that the South was loyal and that, it, that many of the people who had been involved in Al-Qaeda had been from other parts of the country. Two of them, in fact, were from Asir, the province he was from, um, Walid and Walid, I think it's Walid, yeah, Walid and Walid al-Shekhri um, were the two people who were up from that. And, and in fact, to show you how small the world is, and it's great you asked this sort of this question, two of them have gone to high school with another artist who was in that, Abdel Nasser Garam, hmm. one of the artists who I saw um, in hashtag come together, part of this larger thing of Edge of Arabia, had gone to high school with these guys. Hmm. Um, he talks about the fact sort of of his own worldview. Um, actually, he just recently, just in Germany, for instance, but his own worldview is very similar, but he went in a different direction. He didn't go yeah. to Al-Qaeda. Um, he, he became an, uh, um, a, um, a soldier in the army, a commando. In fact, he missed, I believe he missed his first show because he had to be on a commando exhibition. Uh, <laughs> Priorities. <laughs> yeah, I guess we got your priorities. But, and, and in fact, um, his opening book actually, um, Book has a picture of him, um, of art, has a picture of him in his military uniform, um, which makes for a sort of, and, and he, by the way, is an enormously, and he had a great piece in that. We were very lucky that first show, hashtag come, hashtag come together. So um, we were really lucky, my wife and I, when we visited, it's this great piece called Capital Dome. And it's got uh, the US Capitol. Um, it's got a black thing that could be, uh, could be oil, could be something else. It's got a, a below the dome. Uh, a quotation from Surah the Fatiha, the opening of, of the Quran. It's got Lady Liberty in front. And we were really lucky because no one was in the gallery that we were able to sort of slide under it a bit. Just my wife, we were able to get pictures under it um, to see it. And it was a wonderful, creative work of art. And I, I realized, I was looking at those pieces, I'm going like, well, this is, this is, these guys are talking at a level that I hadn't seen before. And I got to the kingdom and I began investigating that. I was based in Riyadh at King Saud and I began investigating that. And that meant I needed to go travel to the South. So I went to where this had begun, this actual movement had begun in the South, a place called Al-Niftaha. Um, and this was this uh, sort of an art studio for lack of a better word, um, not an art school or anything, an art studio um, that had been founded by Halep bin Faisal um, in the early 2000s, other things, uh, Walton newspaper, some other things that were founded as well. But it was, uh, there were art prizes and other things, but he did this as a way to start reviving society in the South. We have a problem. We need to think about how are we going to revive society? And they began and you sort of, okay, this is a place you can do art. And a group of people had gotten together, um, people like, uh, um, uh, like Akbar Matar, Abdul Nasser Garmak got together. And you know what they did? They formed a majlis. <laughs> they started talking. Yeah. Um, Garam had been from a family, his grand, I think father or grandfather had been um, an important person uh, who had also led majlis. If so he knew where it was, he was stationed in the military at the time um, in a place called Hamis Mushayt, um, next, to, uh, um, next, to in, um, next to Abha, the capital of the Syria. And it was, um, you know, they began to talk and, and it coincided with the um, introduction of the internet. So they suddenly were able to educate themselves. And remember, none of these guys who had become famous artists had any education in the arts outside of what they might've taken in high school. So is this majlis uh, of their own or under the auspices of uh, Khalid Faisal? Or, or? It's, it's on their own. Yeah. 
the very famous red couch, for instance. Yeah, they just sort of got together and started talking. But Holland and Faisal would sort of push them along. For instance, um, the man named Stephen Stapleton, an English artist, um, was visiting an exhibit and was asking questions about, about Middle Eastern art and um, asked a lot of questions and during a tour. And another person on the tour said to him, if you're interested in going to Saudi Arabia, call this number. And the person who was there and shows you just how crazy this is, was Holop and Faisal's son. <laughs> so, so as we know, as you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's quite specific regions in Saudi Arabia and they each have their identity oh, yeah. and their affinities and their loyalties. Now, are, are, are we offending any particular region by saying- No, most uh, of this first of all, we would not want to offend anyone. No, no, no. What I'm saying is, 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 is like uh, if I'm a Hijazi and I'm going, what do you mean talking about arts, you know, uh, coming out of the South? We had our own culture here. Oh, sure. And, uh, first of all, um, and one of the things that's terrific about uh, about the arts, and you'll see this, for instance, with comedy, um, with stand-up comedy would be another thing that would develop out of this, is that they, they are understanding of regional connections and linkages. And no, let me go back just for a second. The arts was a very problematic issue. Um, mm -hmm. After the attack on the Kaaba, after the, uh, in, you know, and the conservative trend um, in Saudi society in, in the 19, in 1979, just for yeah, 79. Yeah. Thank you for that. You know, and, but also sort of a conservative trend from the 80s forward. Art really didn't fully disappear from public life, but came very close to that. You didn't have art classes. You didn't have art exhibits. Um, you didn't have music, even though you had famous Saudi musicians and a well-developed music scene that you didn't have public performances. Correct. Um, Muhammad Abdu, the person I mentioned earlier, you know, for years didn't have public performances up until uh, up until 2017, so a very famous one. In fact, a DJ joked that the only place that they had public sort of music performances as wet were at weddings. Sort of jokingly <laughs> said that were our sole sort of dance floors or dance clubs for weddings. Well, this is this is one of the interesting things about uh, Vision 2030, and that that you know that 1979 attack and that year 1979 was 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 a sort of a benchmark. Was that you know that same year the Iranian Revolution occurred, same year Russia invaded Afghanistan, right? And, Big year. and the Saudi Saudi uh, leadership decided they needed to move significantly right. And more conservative, in order to not to be outflanked, and and, and and so and so so you know consequently the, the more control over the, the the public sphere, art sphere by uh, Muslim conservatives. So arts were suppressed. They went into did they go into hiding? What what? Oh sure. I mean, first of all, arts didn't go into hiding. There were still arts courses in high school, but it wasn't part of the public discourse. And, and by the way, a, just 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 sorry, sorry to interrupt, Sean. Yeah. I mean, part of part of this vibrant society is a quite conscious choice to go. All right, let's let's go back pre seventy nine. Let's have a more moderate Islam. More, more right. So, so they recognized that this was a, a, a watershed moment that probably led them, in terms of arts and society, too far to the right. And they, right. they want to go back and unwind some of this. But anyway, so and you're getting ready. This is this is fascinating because. Again, we constantly here, the arts were there, artists were there, creators were there. Um, but as you're saying, they were quiescent. They were, it was too problematic to be out and they didn't have platforms or forums to do so. Right. Uh, it was done in, 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 in and one thing, it's a, there's a fascinating conversation um, uh, that that's sort of mentioned where foreign journalists inter interviews circa 7980, a, a, a foreign, a senior prince, and he's asked, sort of, you can't go on conservative like this. And the prince says, our kids are more conservative than we are. Mm. 
Um, so that there's a, it's a sort of interesting sort of that, but you're right. The idea of going back in time and, and, in, and in fact, echoing, um, there's a, um, a movie, Baraka meets Baraka, um, mm. a great movie, 2016, um, Hisham Faki stars in it, other people as well, um, Mahmoud Sabaz, the director, um, that has that conversation. And in fact, has a question, like back in the seventies, we had art, we had music, we had culture, we had Saudi players on our soccer team. Why can't we go back to that? And it was a, a remarkable moment um, when the movie came out and shortly thereafter, Mohammed bin Salman's giving a speech and he echoes those words from the movie. Mm. That there's a sort of understanding of, of a conversation and a dialogue um, that are happening at multiple levels. And that dialogue and conversation to me are, 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 are important. Um, and, and can I, I mention one of those sort of how this develops? I mean, can I, example of, of and what's interesting, by the way, about, about the lack of arts is that part of what the art scene does at the beginning of the 21st century is um, the Khalid bin Faisal is these guys, the, the people in the South, in this, initially in the South, but it's going to spread throughout the country, begin to look at these, at these challenges as an opportunity. Mm-hmm. That they say, okay, we can't, op- we're not going to be able to articulate our art in the same way or talk about what the concerns we wish to talk about in the same way. How do we then develop a type of art that can function in this context? How do we develop a type of thinking? Um, for instance, the one I mentioned, Akhbat Mato, that piece is a doctor by training. Mm-hmm. One of his great pieces is called The Evolution of Man. And The Evolution of Man is a great picture where it's from a X-ray and it goes from a man with a gun to his head, evolving to a gas tank sign. Depending on which direction you go. Depending on which direction you're reading. <laughs> right. What does it mean? Yeah. And it's a great picture. And again, part of it is he's an artist, right? He's an artist. Right. Um, and he's, but he says, I'm a doctor. So I'm not speaking to society. I'm not telling you what I think. I'm providing you with a diagnosis like a doctor. <laughs> oh, yeah. Another great piece he does. Um, he, he's, uh, he's got a, another wonderful piece called De- a book called Desert of Pharaoh, which has hundreds of pictures from all over um, all over um, Arabia, all over Mecca. And you see both the, the poorest of pictures and the wealthiest of pictures all in one place. And, and by the way, there are women here, too. Everyone always sort of asks me that question. Are on the Wonderful picture, a wonderful one that she's done. Manal of the wine is another one. Um, uh, um, there's a great piece she does, um, and, and this is Arwan uh, Ami called "Never Neverland." And so, can I just one second? I'll finish. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's bumper. It's women driving bumper cars <laughs> from 2014. <laughs> And uh, Aslan Mata has that famous one with, uh, are they magnets around the Kaaba? Uh, yeah. It's quite yeah. Compel- visually compelling. Oh, yeah. So, so <clears throat> there's the, the culture's there. The, the, yeah. the environment and the community is there. And they're negotiating uh, how to express themselves in, right. in, in this post-79 oh, yeah. world. And and let's face it, and, and King Abdullah, uh, you know, had some some liberalizing tendencies. Oh yeah, absolutely. He tried to open up, and and as you say, f- significant figures like like uh, Hanal Turkey, 
yeah. um, Helena Faisal, rather. Um, we'd like to get his brother, Turkey uh, Bin Faisal. Oh, absolutely. And, and on, by the way, the show. And actually, important. to be honest, we, uh, when, I, when I communicate with Prince Turkey, it's like everyone wants to talk to him about uh, contemporary affairs, U.S. Saudi, this. And I'd love to talk with him about the legacy of King Faisal and the, and the Faisal Foundation which is extraordinary, done extraordinary oh, yeah. things. Yeah, and the is. reason is because just as you say about Khaled Al-Faisal, I mean, there's a significant creative in, in, intelligence habit in that family. Oh yeah. Um, um, so, and the contributions they've made. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and look, he, he, you know, some people have been Faisal thought maybe he might be ended up being a king or something like that. He didn't, but he's made significant contributions just as governor of the seer. Oh my, but, yes. And now has also been governor of Mecca, governor of education, someone who's interested in the arts, has these arts. And I showed these artists who begin, to, what they do is they develop a, a sort of scene in the South that begins to spread out in a model. Right. Um, I mean, Arwa is another person from the South also that, 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 that I just want to make sure I, I got it in. I didn't mean to interrupt you so I wouldn't forget because it's, it's a wonderful piece of work. Um, another one called Lipstick that she does. Um, Manal Dawayan is another artist who's actually from the Eastern province, does this terrific piece called Suspended Together that is a bunch of doves flying, but they are um, cards. They are basically pieces of paper um, that are signed documents allowing women to travel. Huh. And so, and, and again, you know, depending on how you look at it, it looks like a group of, of things flying, but if you look closer, right. something else is going on. And, you know, part of the point of it is, uh, um, as an art gallery mentioned, uh, art gallery owner said to me at the time, um, it allows everyone to get their own say, to have their own say, speak about what they're looking at. Right. Um, that if you don't define it, um, I, I use this horribly academic term, esoteric, which, but, it, but it means something that can have multiple meanings for which somebody else can define. Well, it can't be as bad as inosculation, which Lucian oh, dropped no. on us recently. <laughs> but but <laughs> Lucian, so Lucian wins. Lucian wins the SF. Still number award. one, baby. Whatever you just said, Sean, is a simply a pretender to inosculation. <laughs> right. Oh, absolutely. But but in terms of and I, I you know, in these other contexts, you, you want to be clear. Um, but but the idea basically is that, that they're producing this art and they're talking about different things. Um, one of the pieces you like, um, Serat that wonderful piece that sat in the South with the roadway. He's doing that to that. There are other pieces in 2006, 2007. It's a amazing piece about a bridge and a bridge that collapsed. Um, very famous. It was actually built by the Bin Laden family. And, and it, it was supposedly the safe bridge in a Wadi in the South. And, it, and the town people went there when there was a flood and it collapsed. And it, it was a horrible moment. Um, and he, he takes a picture of it and he's doing this two things about it, which are fascinating. One, he's doing this piece right when there's a, when there are issues in other parts of the country with infrastructure, uh, Jeddah famously. Um, mm -hmm. although he's not directly talking about it, these are issues that, that are, um, that are there. Um, and you also see, um, that when he did the exhibit, there were questions about the piece. There were some people who thought it actually, it's this picture going out, it's very haunting. Uh, and has Sirat written on it on the ground and it's this thing going out into black, into the black distance. And it, some people thought he was talking about walking on the Quran or Quranic images. And it was so bad in London when they were gonna do the exhibit um, a number of years ago, many years ago, that he eventually actually had to come up with another piece. Um, it was somebody else defining it, but because of the potential of somebody else and the end of that piece he did instead uh, was these series of pictures called the stamp 
um, sort of stamping on and in Saudi Arabia has lots of stamping. Sure, so have, have a bit of commitment, for instance, yeah. inshallah or Amin. Yeah. Uh, a lot of humor with this. Humor, by the way, is a wonderful tool for this type of art because the whole, the best jokes assert one thing, right? When needing something else. So, so uh, it's germinating in the South. All right. It's, yeah. it's strong in the South. And where does, does it, are there regions that follow that come out? I mean, is there a, is there a path or is it sort of diffuse and all over? It diffuses um, all over the country. I mean, Manal, for instance, I just mentioned um, is from the Eastern province, but there are going to be people who are going to from the Hejaz, from Mecca, from Riyadh, all of will be involved. And it's going to sort of, that's the initial generation up, but it's going to start picking up. These are people born initially seventies, people born in the seventies and people more millennial earlier, say older millennials, 80, you know, people born in the 80s began to emerge, many of whom have gone to school in the United States. So, um, and they're going to found, often they're going to be contributed. Um, Hisham Faki, who I mentioned earlier, was one. Another one, uh, very part of this generation, also extremely bright, Ranin Bukhari, who's going to found a, um, art, an art called, place called Desert Designs um, that's in the Eastern province. Um, and that's going to have, um, she's also going to have art that's exhibited, but also um, and some other things that will not only bring art, but also create frameworks by which art is not only elite, but can go to the masses. So let me ask you a question and it, it, it'll speak to your, your professorial philosophical self. Uh, you have artists who are a community that's trying to express itself in a, in a, in a difficult environment. Right. Um, and you, they may have champions, but they have plenty, plenty of, uh, of opponents. Sure. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a conservative society, uh, majority conservative society who, who wouldn't feel comfortable. So they may or may, you know, what progress they have or what acceptance they have is, is so, so that's one challenge. Sure. So now, you know, Ahmed Mater is one of 12 artists invited to do this uh, Wadi Alfan, you know, right. uh, uh, you know, Valley of Art out near Alula, which is a, a major installation, government supported. And one of the yeah. one of the artists there said, this is just amazing because, you know, whereas before I would try and express my art, uh, you know, uh, encounter opposition and difficulty and that sort of thing. Now the government is supporting me 100 percent and wants me to go forward. These are now two different challenges for right. an artist. And so, yes, uh, you know, how do artists, how do artists, it, it, you know, how are they negotiating this sea change? Everything's different. Oh, absolutely. And, and remember earlier, there's some generation who died penniless, you know, that, that, you know, figuring out ways to monetize your art. Right. Um, the, the second generation of artists are, are going to, I mean, again, people like Garm and Mata are very, are now world famous. They have pieces exhibited, say, you know, like County Museum or British or major museums. Monetizing is a different challenge for them. But yes, absolutely. There are two challenges that, that are there. First, monetizing and, and that second generation people like um, Hishan Faki, for instance, Ali Kathami, um, they would work together at Telfaz, were able to develop um, online systems, um, for instance, you, uh, YouTube, YouTube effectively television platforms um, that began to develop actual funding for themselves. Telfaz 11, for instance, has gotten private, which is, was based in Riyadh, now based in Jeddah, has now significant private investment. Um, which is beginning to do that. And, and of course, anytime you're working with the government, it, it raises other questions, for instance, about artistic integrity, artistic independence. Um, in fact, some of those artists, for instance, um, have sort of complained that they all, people always want to ask us about government. Why don't we talk about our art? Um, and that's an interesting challenge for, for all sides. 
Um, that independent voice is something and having that independent creative voice is something that is in the incentive for everybody involved in the process. Um, how to get that is, is complicated, but it is something that all sides are aware of and working on. Um, and I should note, by the way, with people confused with the kingdom, it's not surprising. Its name is Saudi Arabia and the royal family's name. So people almost are blinded to think when they look at the kingdom to begin and end their sentences with the king or with the monarch or the crown prince when it's a much larger country that deserves a, a conversation. So how are they being received? So we, we understand Saudi Arabia is vastly majority conservative. Um, and just like, just like, you know, Texas. Right. You know, in its own right. Um, uh, is this community and, and it, you know, it's art and the things it's producing, is it gaining a wider acceptance is more, you know, or is it just a select you know, demographic in the society that is being supportive or is it broader than that? No, no, it's much broader than that. Yeah, it's much broader. Yeah, first of all, remember this is a society that's always been, we've always assumed about sort of in, in the society being conservative. And it certainly is based on, on what happened in the 80s and, and the 90s into the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And the, but we've been on a transformative period for almost 20 years. So that the kingdom is, I mean, King Abdullah, um, again, support the arts was part of a, a transition. And that transition um, reflect the fact that things were already there. Um, you know, if you're in the kingdom, you will have vastly, for instance, if you visit families, you will have vastly different contexts. There will be certain families where men and women will be split. There are other families where you will visit, for instance, where people will, it will be like you're visiting an American household, no different. Um, and in part of that, it should be noticed that there are significant differences. But one of the things that Saudi artists have consciously done is built a type of art that can cross both the conservative mm -hmm. and the liberal traditions, which in I think society, is, and moderates and everybody else. They know, want to create a type of art to quote the American sort of quote the American TV show that can be all in the family and that they've, well, they've, they've mm -hmm. done it. And I, I think it, it's to their credit because that's a whole nother skill set involved with being an artist, not only are you an artist, you have to raise it to another level where you can, you can, you can cross boundaries, you can be accessible to different audiences within your own country. Right. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. And this is part of what is I, I, sort of my awe, what they do. And, and when I speak about them, um, I always have notes and other things nearby to make sure I do it right. Um, because the challenge they've done it, to me is in, in utter awe. And I, I do my best to, to understand what they're doing, to learn from their example, um, to think about how do I, and, and by the way, learn in my own class from my own dealings. How do I create um, in a classroom of say 35 students or seven or how many students from the classroom? How do I create my own, ver my own communication that will appeal to a maximum audience that will understand how different things and part of what I've done is learn from them. Oftentimes, when we think about this kingdom, um, particularly as Westerners, we do so from a sense of, well, they're developing towards us or something, or they're modernizing. I see it as a two-way street. There's much to learn from them. And that art in particular, um, you know, comedy, um, again, stand-up comedy, and they have their own questions about issues we deal with, say, with race. Holland Moss, for instance, um, is, a, is one of the stand-up comedians I've dealt with. And um, he'll have discussions about, uh, about those issues within their culture and society. Um, he's actually now doing, sort of tell you how these things are synthesized. Uh, a wonderful series he'll be doing starting in August in the Kingdom in Jeddah at the Comedy Club, um, which will do him as stand-up comedy, interactions with the audience, talking about philosophy, but also having um, musicians 
as well. And so it's not only that they're interested in all different voices, they're also interested in multiple artistic genres simultaneously. Well, let's talk about that. One of the things we had, um, Dr. Mark Thompson and Dr. Neil Quilliam, who are sure. uh, with the uh, King Faisal Center for Religious and International Studies, just doing uh, groundbreaking and, and really unique work on socioeconomics in Saudi Arabia. And they talk about, we've had, we've had Mark twice and Mark and Neil once, and um, they talk about uh, how the youth is driving change. Mm-hmm. The youth are driving change. And, and uh, in the arts, is it fair to say that the youth are going to be gravitate in particular in terms of new into things like music and uh, comedy and, and oh. that sort of thing. And so, and you, you, you just did recently did a fascinating event at the Hai Jamil in, in, uh, in Jeddah. Yeah. And can you tell us about that? And, and, oh. and again, how, again, with particular reverence to, to what youth and you also were, you had, you were at, uh, you were at sand, you were at Soundstorm too, which I think is amazing. Oh, it was. <laughs> <laughs> It was. Okay, let's back up here first. And, and I, by the way, I'm, I'm glad you, you, your timing is perfect as always for two reasons. First, I, I, I'm aware of Mark's work. And of course, I've read it and been aware of it for a long time. Important scholar in our field. But also, um, Hamza, when you mentioned the thing about Halit Moss, you did it well, because that project in March would have not been possible without Halit's help. Uh-huh. And let me, expl- let me explain why. When um, Halit and I had a great interview when I, for the first book, he actually, as an opening discussion, um, uh, uh, about culture and society and, and what it means to be uh, a Saudi of, of African ancestry. Um, and again, also Ibrahim, Mississippi is another one uh, too, but with Abbas. And, and while he was doing it, he, he said to me, um, you know, you need to start watching um, one of his friends named Hamza Hassawi. And I said, all right. And, um, and, and I did a, a, actually, my book actually was translated in Arabic this past year. And I, they asked me to do a, a revised introduction. So I did. Baruch. Yeah, and um, what I did was um, when I, I mentioned to Ham, I mentioned to Halid that I was doing this, and he said you got to write about about Hamza. And so what happened was to sort of to make a long story short, I, I wrote I was writing this, and I also had a conversation with another friend of mine named Plus Aziz, who's a Kuwaiti singer, but has done a lot of work interacting with Saudis, and we had a long conversation about Saudi music. And um, I, we got it together and I, I wrote a piece about Plus Disease, but also about other golf artists, did that piece published by AGSW. And that took off. And that ended up meaning that I ended up getting together um, at both a conference as well as a, um, a, a performance at High Jamil um, in Jeddah. And that performance, of course, was led by Hamza Hassawi, as well, he was the, the star performer. He actually won the Middle East X Factor. A terrific Karuner singer. Uh, um, great guy also. Um, one of the nicest people. He's actually actively at work, working on his new album. You take a look on his social media and you'll see this. So I thank him, by the way, uh, for I asked for a couple of pictures to share Lucian with you. So he was nice enough to take a minute to do that. But yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things that was, it was, it was amazing to do that. And I should note for a moment, um, when I worked with one of the, the artistic managers, when I sort of contacted people and about doing this performance, and I, and I um, in this performance at, at Hai Jamil, two things about it. A, Hai Jamil were absolutely fantastic to work with. They provided an absolutely perfect space, beautiful, perfect space um, in the kingdom. And it's interesting because one of the, the music, the managed music performers said, Jamil, I thought he did. I thought he, you know, the guy who found the foundation and provided money for the foundation. I thought he didn't like music. 
I thought he was, he thought music and Islam weren't necessarily linked together. And the idea that, and he looked at me and said, but now they want to do music. I said, yeah, they do. Absolutely. <laughs> Why wouldn't they? And that, that gives you an idea of, of the transformative element of, of music in the kingdom and how much the society has changed and how it's in part being driven by youth. No, I mean, that's like one fifth of kids, 18 to something, um, and government statistics have musical instruments. So let, let's, let me let me get straight to the to the to the core of this. How much has society changed? Oh, um, it has changed and it is changing rapidly. Um, and, and, and again, two things um, that 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 sort of show you um, one, of course, are the and I'm sure you both have seen this in public is the amount of women in pu- the amount of women in public um, in public places. Um, the amount of women driving. I mean, that's a, an obvious tangible change. In, and for instance, although there are still family and single male sections, those are now crossed. That's an enormous difference. Um, mm-hmm. My wife, for instance, lived with me when I did my research in the kingdom and talked about wearing, you know, she would have to wear the abaya. And in fact, one of the great questions, uh, Richard, she'd actually ask me, what would be, what would, how would we eat when we visit friends' houses? And I'd say, we're going to have to find out when we get there <laughs> with her. And, um, you might be with me, you might not be. We'll figure it out. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's one thing. The other thing that's really remarkable is music that you're in and the, the amount of cafes that have spread, thousands of cafes have spread about the kingdom, many of which are actually run by women. And you will hear music in a way in public spaces that you hadn't before. And that's really remarkable um, that you will go, for instance, you're in a cafe um, in, um, in, say, Riyadh, artistic cafe, and you will hear Um Kulthum being played. Um, if you go to Riyadh Gallery, this large a, a amusement place, the parts of it actually kind of look like Times Square, there are huge, large speakers that are there. And they're also developing for the first time public places to play music. Um, there had actually been um, yeah. in my compound um, in Riyadh several months before I got there um, in 2013, um, there had been actually a, um, a raid on it because someone had done a, a concert there. Now today, so th- that gives you an idea of sort of if you played a concert that you might be raided by the Motawa, the often translated as the religious police. Today, there are places like the music space, for instance, um, which is built um, in Jeddah or Makan. These are two fantastic artistic places um, that exist as well. Hani Hoja, for instance, is one of the people running um, the music space um, as well. Um, you have a development of an industry, young people, Wasim Omran, for instance, um, for instance, um, is um, effectively a, a booking agent um, for different types of people. He himself actually tried to play in public uh, in the Eastern province in public uh, a number of years ago. And that uh, was a complicated <laughs> well. but, but even today, um, even complicated issues about, uh, for him, even a number of years ago, getting married, about sort of, you know, working through, like, what this guy does music? Wait, is that okay? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And, and I should note, there are both men and women involved. Randa Sherry, another person, wonderful singer um, as well, um, who was part of that. I should note when um, the, the moment, the event in um, um, at High Jamil, again, terrific guests, uh, terrific host for us. It was a beautiful, absolutely beautiful, wonderful evening. With that evening, um, she, for instance, performed before and I met her and we talked during soundcheck. Um, she, she came up and she was wearing an abaya, right? And when she did her performance on stage, she was wearing a pink, pan, a pink uh, suit, woman's suit. It was a, a <laughs> six, yeah, yeah. And it was amazing to watch sort of, you're talking about youth generated change. 
as I was there, you know, taking, watching what was going on, people were dancing. Men and women were, you know, they weren't necessarily dancing good, but there were people dancing. And among the women, there were women who were dressed as sort of Westerners, but also women who were sort of Western clothing or that way, but also women wearing by dancing. And also more importantly, Richard, you ask about acceptance, taking videos of themselves to be posted on social media. Truly. And, and, but there, there, there remains a, a, like you say, and I think that's an interesting story with, you know, she wears an abaya and then when she's on stage, she wears something else. There is a tension. Oh, sure. There remains a tension. And, 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 I, I, you know, for, for, for non-Saudis or for, for, for Americans who are just slightly, they sort of can't get the paradox because they, they go, all right, wow. You know, theaters back in Saudi Arabia, 2018, you know, the cinema, right. cinema industry sector is just booming. They're, you know, they're doing major blockbusters movies like Kandahar and Desert Warrior. And, you know, women are going to theaters. Artists are coming out. You know, Saudi artists, they have Red Sea Film Festival. It's just busting along. Oh, by, by the way, you can't we're not going to we're not going to you know, we're not going to show, uh, you know, uh, certain films. Yeah, we're not going to say, you know, Dr. Strange or. The Eternals, or recently, you know, Lightyear, because of portrayal of, of alternative lifestyles or drug sure. use, whatever. So, tell me about the paradox. And and, oh, sure. and I th for us who's deeply involved with it, it makes sense because it, it, it's it's consistent with many things in our own society as it transitions from you know, as it transitions and and moves forward and and, and that sort of thing. But I, I'm interested in your take on it. Two things. First, it happened. It has happened so quickly. Uh, the right. people who, yeah, that for a lot. By the way, by the way, by the way, that should be that should be the theme, the mm -hmm. overlying, you know, the Chiron for yeah. Saudi Arabia. It's happened so quickly. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. like again, and as an expert, I I worry that what I write or what I talk about will be. I have to go back. I try to regularly get back to the kingdom because I fear that if I miss something, if I'm what I think is, if I don't get back there regularly, if they're uh, December and spring, I'll get back there hopefully later this year that if I, if I'm not there, I'm going to, you know, miss, miss things. And I, and, you know, can I, I give an answer to that um, about to understand the kingdom and, and this paradoxes, I, can I can't quote a Saudi, I'm going to quote a, another Saudi artist because again, I, I, I seek to learn from their example. There's a great interview with Hisham Faqib, um, who spent time in the States. And when talking about Saudi and that question of the paradox, he said, he looks at his, at America and he says, look, you know, I'm not going to, yeah, Hollywood has got a certain vision of what America looks like, but that's not day-to-day -day life in Florida or North Dakota or New York. Look, I, I, I'm in, in, in Nashville, Tennessee, um, you know, middle Tennessee here, and life even within the region um, between Nashville versus Murfreesboro, um, where my university is versus other places, um, are, are, are different. And that can be starkly different, account, you know, a couple of counties over. And the answer is, if you want to understand those differences in that culture and those contradictory forces, look at our own society. And we're hardly alone. Look at look at look at countries in Europe or in Asia, where there are starkly differences, even a couple of miles over, um, between different communities, and also different cultures in society. It's not only speed, but also this is a culture that has hundreds of tribes, where there are significant differences of culture and tradition. Um, depending on where things are. One of the great things I should know about, about in the South is the South has had a consistent artistic tradition. In fact, um, Matar talks about the fact that his own mother um, was, an art, was an artist in her own right and helping him learn that. 
um, as well. Most and and it's it's fascinating how different artists you know think in those terms. Dr. Sean Foley specializes in Middle East history and the cultural, <laughs> political, and religious trends in the wider Islamic world. Uh, Dr. Sean, this was awesome. Great discussion. You're going to have to come back. There's plenty of meat left on this lamb bone for us to get into. <laughs> so, um, we'd love to have you back. Um, I'd love to. Fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was our conversation with Dr. Sean Foley. A reminder, if you're listening to this podcast um, and a bulk of our listeners are listening to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Google or Spotify or Stitcher. We're actually, Richard, on 20 plus platforms now and that keeps expanding. But if you're listening to this, you can um, watch that segment if you want or watch any of these conversations as segments. There's some really good B-roll, but in that conversation, we'll have a lot of the art that Dr. Sean Foley references. Um, so you can kind of check it out. It's all really interesting. Some of it mind blowing. So um, yeah. if you're listening to this, head over to YouTube um, and watch that because there's some good art there. I should, I, I would add two things to that. One, and seeing it, you can also see me hold up the Clemson cup that I paid for it with tens of thousands of dollars. That's an expensive cup. <laughs> cup. And you can see the masterwork that uh, Lucian does on B-roll. He does it for every episode. It's, 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 it's a professional caliber. It's great stuff. Really good stuff. You are very kind, Mr. Wilson. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I feel, I feel, uh, I feel seen now, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I see you. Lucian. <laughs> Let's get to yellow. What do you think, Richard? Saudi in a minute. Yellow. Yellow. Right. <laughs> we're getting, we're getting worse. <laughs> we're not getting better. We're getting worse. <laughs> you know, we've been at it. I mean, this is, a, what is that? We're into our third hour of taping. This and by this time we're punchy. <laughs> Um, is is Biden in Saudi Arabia yet? <laughs> we keep going. Yes. We're recording this from Air Force One. Uh. <laughs> um, um, number one, yellow number one, Saudi Arabia, country commercial guide. The U.S. International Trade Administration recently published its country commercial guide for Saudi Arabia, stating that Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 is a paradigm shift from a public sector driven economy to one that the state intends will be driven by the private, private sector as the main engine for economic growth and job creation. Vision 2030 has created opportunities for US companies across industry sectors, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the Giga projects, Neom, Kadia, Amala, Red Sea, and Daria Gate, as well as in defense, ICT, renewable energy, mining and minerals, health, education, infrastructure, entertainment, and tourism. This report, Richard, was, um, and it's it's sort of ongoing and it, they update it, but this is really good. Um, and I'm really glad we're talking about this because there's, there's if you're looking to get into the Saudi market, if you're looking to do business in Saudi Arabia, it sort of talks about everything you just mentioned, some of the sectors that are interesting, the giga projects, um, but it also has things like, you know, how to get a visa and what business travel there is like. It looks at customs and regulation services and how to sell your products and gives you some tips on on sales and some culture stuff. I mean, it's just sort of like a good beginner's guide and not even a beginner's guide, but a good like sort of reference for if you're looking to do business in Saudi Arabia. Obviously, it's in the USTR's interest to do that because it helps U.S. companies. But, it, it you know, this is a valuable resource that the USTR puts out. It is a valuable resource, and and that's one reason I wanted to I wanted to include it in today's uh, this this episode's yellow, 
It, it does. It, 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 it's worth a read. It's interesting. It, it can be very helpful. It has, uh, I just want to run through the, the segments on it. It's, so Saudi Arabia Country Commercial Guide, then it has doing business in Saudi, then two leading sectors for U.S. exports and investments, three customs regulations and standards, four selling U.S. products and services, five business travel, six investment climate statements, seven political and economic environment. And I want to add too, because this is the sort of thing that is useful to small and medium-sized businesses. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a large, you know, multinational corporation probably has assets and capabilities to, to do this on their own. But the ITA, the, the International Trade Administration who does this, uh, they also offer what's called a cold, gold key service, gold key service which provides U.S. companies matchmaking appointments with partners in foreign markets. I mean, and, and they have a whole pricing list for based on the size of your company. So, so if you're a smaller company, it's going to be less expensive. Um, but, it, you know, I, I just, it's as a, as a public service and the 966 is interested in U.S. business and, you know, and promoting U.S. business and, and opportunities, commercial opportunities in Saudi Arabia. This is a, uh, a partner and an assist and, and a, a way to advance your understanding and possibly you know, significantly increase your contacts in Saudi Arabia right here, provided by the U.S. government mm -hmm. as, a public, as a public service. Well, you know, there's a fee involved for some of the, the gold key service, but it's not, it's not prohibitive by any means. And it's worth looking into if you, if you don't already have a, a footprint in Saudi Arabia or if you want to get one. And I'm sure some of our listeners are in that boat. So hopefully we can get just one of them to do it. We'd be making a difference here with the 966, Richard, which is good. <laughs> there you go. Number two, TikTok hosted its first edition of their hashtag For You Summit in Saudi Arabia at AMC Cinemas. KAFD bringing together over 300 attendees, including C-level advertisers and marketers and Saudi content creators and leading brands and agencies in the kingdom. The experiential event featured a locally tailored series of predominantly Arabic language sessions hosted by leading TikTok experts, which I consider myself among, uh, demonstrating the company's <laughs> commitment to the Saudi market and their investment in building a world-class local team led by Fahad Al-Maghrabi, head of business partnerships, global business solutions for TikTok in Saudi Arabia. So just take a look at that first sentence. I mean, TikTok hosted a summit, essentially, in Saudi Arabia at AMC Cinemas, a, a U.S. company. So obviously, as we know, we mentioned many times, cinemas weren't available in Saudi Arabia in 2018. This is a U.S. company, you know, uh, helping to pro promote a, a U.S. company uh, on social media uh, in Saudi Arabia. I just think it's, it's notable to take, to stop and, and look at this sometimes. Um, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I still, I still struggle with Instagram when my kids put post stuff, how come it goes away? What's the point of that? And, you know, this is, this is, this is, this is, you know, a dad conversation. <laughs> so obviously TikTok is not in my wheelhouse, although it is transfixing to watch it sometimes. It's just, you know, you just, you can just get lost in just watching some things, but anyway, it's pretty, it's pretty cool that this is happening in Saudi Arabia. To add to that, it took place at AMC Cinemas, as you said, in the King Abdullah Financial District, which was a sort of uh, startup mini city within Riyadh, which kind of languished for a bit, is now almost complete or nearing completion with sort of new funding and being bought out by the PIF. But that's cool. And that whole area looks modern and awesome. I mean, I've, actually, I'm, I'm going to see if we can find uh, for our viewers, Richard, any photos or any art of this, but I'm sure it looked really 
like the type of thing you would just have to say, this is happening in Saudi Arabia. This doesn't really fit what I think of Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's TikTok, right. like you said. Um, but yeah, very interesting. I do love how Instagram just completely copied TikTok. And now it just has, if you go to Reels, you can just get the TikTok experience and watch an hour of 15 to 60 second videos that are just so interesting. Um, right now, all I'm getting is like construction and food stuff. So like really cool construction hacks for some reason, which are fascinating. And then like people cooking a meal that takes three hours in about 20 seconds. And you're like, whoa, interesting. It's really easy to do that, I guess. But uh, no, this is really cool. And I guess TikTok is huge in Saudi Arabia now. So uh, probably a big market for that company. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Yellow number three, Saudi Arabia's transport authority's decision to make wearing uniforms mandatory for male and female taxi drivers came into force on Tuesday, July 12th, according to the Saudi Gazette. The transport general authority's decision to make wearing uniform mandatory is applicable for men as well as women taxi drivers. So does this apply to Uber drivers or is it just for, for taxis? I think it's probably just taxis. Clarified, uh, clarified that drivers who will be obligated to wear the designated uniforms are public taxi drivers, airport taxi drivers, family taxi drivers, passenger, tra tra passenger uh -huh. transport apps drivers, and private taxi drivers. So I, I have to think the passenger transport apps drivers is Uber drivers. Wow. So, so the headline really is Uber drivers are now wearing um, uniforms in Saudi Arabia. That's, uh, that is very interesting. And the um, uniforms are, I think it's just men must wear national dress or a long sleeve gray shirt, black trousers and a black belt. Jackets may be worn as required for, you know, nights out on the town. Women can wear an abaya or a blouse and trousers with a jacket or a coat. All drivers must also carry their ID cards. Well, very interesting. I don't know how they're going to enforce it other than tattletales and people reporting drivers, but um yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons why people liked driving for Uber in the beginning, obviously the extra income, but was that they would get to sort of be casual and do it whenever they wanted. This adds a little bit of formality to it, which I think is probably um, being targeted by the government. But this is a this is an interesting story. Well, it is. And it's consistent with their efforts to make it a, a more attractive tourist des destination. The TGA stated that obligating drivers to wear the uniform aims to standardize and upgrade their general appearance in line with rules of public decorum, as well as to raise the quality of the services and to improve customer experience. Again, if they're open to have 100 million visitors, mm -hmm. you know, by 2030, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to upgrade their services across the board. Richard, we took a couple Ubers in Riyadh where <laughs> there was no was dress, clear this dress and, code and, and no seatbelts, <laughs> <laughs> no dress, no dress code, no seatbelts. And drivers were listening with one with their speaker phones <laughs> on their iPhone, just holding it up uh, to music. And, uh, we <laughs> and for those who have not visited Saudi Arabia yet, the roads can be a little hairy, especially around traffic, high points of traffic. So um that's good that's good that, that that's an experience i could have done without but you know it's interesting anyway um very interesting number four yellow number four opec's demand forecast for 2023 is more optimistic than that of the international energy agency another closely watched forecaster as well as initial views from opec delegates calling for a steeper slowdown to due to high prices 
the 2023 forecasts assume there will be no escalation of the war in Ukraine, and that's and that risks such as inflation do not take a heavy toll on global economic growth. OPEC said. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this. That that IEA uh, forecast, uh, Fatih Barrel, the the executive director of IEA, said, "quote The world has never witnessed such a major energy crisis in terms of its depth and its complexity." We might not have seen the worst of it yet. This is affecting the entire world, unquote. My, the only thing being is that, uh, you know, if I'm an oil producing state or if I'm OPEC, you know, I sit tight. I don't know what's going to happen. I have no idea what's going to happen. I have forecasts. I have a feel. I mean, I think generally people are, 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 are anticipating a downturn in demand because of uh, recessionary uh, forces and that sort of thing. But, I mean, you just don't really know what's going to happen. Um, so yeah, I'm not surprised that, you know, that, that OPEC and IEA and others, they don't see things quite the same, but, uh, yeah, cause it's a, it's a ever shifting thing. You know, does China contract more? Does Ukraine get worse and spread? I mean, you, if you, you know, if we knew that we'd be making a lot of money. Is there another variant of the coronavirus that's going to come by that's way worse and shut everything down? I mean, you know, like the, yeah, <laughs> we are living in a world full of risk. Yeah, so yeah. I, I completely agree with you on that, and I, we don't need to go too much on it. But um, yeah, that's that's interesting. <laughs> Yellow number five: Around three million Saudis have invested in cryptocurrencies as of May 2022, as new study revealed representing 14% of the country's adult population. The majority of these investors, however, have less than one year of experience in crypto investment, 49% of which have only started trading in the last six months, according to a recent report by global crypto exchange platform, Qcoin. I have good news for the majority of those investors. There is no amount of experience you can have in crypto investing that makes you any more qualified than anyone else. Um, I, Richard, I, I thought this was so interesting because, um, you know, that seems about right. Three million out of about, what, 30 million. So about 10%, um, or I guess they say 14% of the country's adult population. So, right. Um, is it Saudis or is it Saudis and expats? Um, either way, this seems about right. Um, and it shows kind of that Saudis are sort of, you know, globally connected and kind of aware of the crypto hype and um, the opportunities in cryptocurrencies. Um, they're probably not aware that the 966 coin will be having our ICO <laughs> it's a, at some it's point. A stable, it's <laughs> a stable coin. It's a stable coin, yes. Um, <laughs> pegged against the real. Um, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, no, this is, uh, this is interesting. Um, it'll be interesting to see where crypto goes next. Notably, the Saudi government really has not been that involved in cryptocurrencies, but they are very interested in blockchain, which we've talked a lot about on the show, um, yeah. which is cool. Well, you know, it says if, if close to 50% have only started trading in the past six months, they're deep underwater. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not sure how, how enamored they are right now of, of crypto. A bad but, time to be getting in or a good time if, you know, well, depending on. Yeah, you know, I guess, I guess more than half of the investors said they believe digital currencies are the future of finance. While 44% said they believe their crypto investments can bring them higher returns that other than other types of financial investments and maybe eventually, but you know, it's one disturbing aspect. So you can, yeah, I can have a view on crypto, you mm -hmm. know, whether it's a Ponzi scheme or it's actual alternative digital currency and, and something that's going to grow. Um, 
social media, according to the report, social media is the most popular source of crypto related information for Saudis, the report said, <laughs> particularly noting YouTube and Twitter. Um, so there you have it. You have this, you know, still indeterminate, you know, digital currency investment that you get advice on from social media. I, I don't know how this is going to end, but it looks a little worrisome. Again, 966 coin, stable, uh, trustworthy, <laughs> invest all your disposable income in it and good things will happen. Um, <laughs> here, we'll send you the address. Here. The account number. You can send your investment. Send too. us cash to <laughs> um, yellow number six. Uh, we've ripped through them again this week, Richard. This is good. Um, <laughs> Saudi students to complete an esteemed maths competition. Students from Saudi Arabia will compete in the International Mathematical Olympiad 2022, the IMO, which will be held in Norway from July 9th through July 16th. So we're right in the thick of it. Right. The International Mathematical Olympiad is a yearly competition for students in algebra, geometry, set theory, and combinatorics. Combinatorics. <laughs> Combinatorics. <laughs> is that is that right? Uh, combinatorics. That's, that's the only reason I put it in there. <laughs> I've never heard of that. I don't, I don't know what it is. I just wanted to hear you try and say it. <laughs> According to Arab News, the IMO will feature over 600 students from the various from various countries around the world. Six Saudi high school students will compete. Saudi Arabia has participated in 20 international mathematical Olympiads, winning eight silver silver medals. 34 bronze medals and 16 certificates of appreciation. So they're in search of their first gold here at the wow. IMO 2022. Wow. That's right. I, you know, I added this because I find it, I don't know what the proper term is. I don't want to be, I, I want to be, I find it endearing the pride that Saudis taking their students. Now, you know, I think it's true of any, uh, any, any emerging country or, you know, Saudis are always aware of their compatriots and the other citizens, because obviously anywhere they go overseas, they're in a minority, they represent the country. There's, there's a true pride involved. And we've talked about these, these student, how Saudi students have done in, um, in competitions. We've talked about how, uh, Saudi uh, education institutions are are advancing and and being included more more prominently and more frequently in in global metrics on on academics and that sort of thing. And each time it happens, there's a tremendous you know there's articles about it in, in the Saudi press. There's a great deal of pride. So I mean, this is yet another one uh, where it, it, these these students are making making Saudi proud, and that Saudi Arabians in general take close notice on this because it's something they really like to see happen. It is a cool story. Um, and the reforms going on in Saudi Arabia's education are, are just, they're kind of too hard to describe, but they're, they're sort of long haul changes that are going on. And the stuff that makes the press in the West are things like inclusive, including, you know, extremist things and, and textbooks and stuff like that. But the real story is just how much this is this, the education of young Saudis has changed from, you know, young Saudis to the higher education system. So I agree with you. This is a great story. Um, and I'm going to Google what combinatorics is. Um, the, Sorry. I knew, no, it's okay. I, I, when I saw this, I said, goodness knows, I don't want to take a shot at that, but I'd love to watch what Lucian does. Combinatorics <laughs> is an area of mathematics primarily concerned with counting, both as a means and an end in obtaining results. 
people also ask, what is combinatorics for? What is combinatorics example? And why is combinatorics so hard? <laughs> I think I think they just used my Google search history and just put that in there. But uh, <laughs> well, see, that's that's very edifying. This is why we do the nine six. Yep, that is why we do it. It's a learning experience yeah. for us and for all of our listeners so, and viewers. So coming to you from Lucian, first it's inosculation, and now it's combinatorics. <laughs> we, you, you, what was you, the and and the third word today we learned from Dr. Foley. Oh, what was that? Um, I I rely on you because you seem to be the you know the this the oracle for all these we're, we're gonna, new gonna, new terms. Unfortunately, I can't remember now, and we're gonna remember <laughs> after recording and just be like, that does this no good. So, um, Richard, this was a great episode. Thank you very much. Big week next week. We have an awesome special type of episode, as we mentioned, coming up. We do. After action in the Biden visit and talking with several experts, which will uh, be rolling out next week. So tune in then. And thank you for being with us today. A reminder to subscribe wherever you're getting this Apple podcast, YouTube, wherever helps us a lot. Mr. Wilson, thank you very much. Thank you, Lucian. Great fun. Great fun.